What happens when you put two experts behind mics to match wits on the current state of financial services, the economy, investments, and more? From the American College of Financial Services, this is Wealth Managed. Welcome to the Wealth Managed Podcast. I'm Michael Finca. I'm a professor of wealth management at the American College. And I'm David Blanchett, head of retirement research at PGM, which is the investment management group of Prudential. And we're here today with Azish Falabi. Azish is the executive director of the American College McGuire Center for Ethics and also a professor at the American College. And today we're going to be talking about trust, which I think is one of my favorite topics. Azish, what does trust mean to you? How would you define trust? Trust has a variety of definitions. So I think at its core, Michael, I think about trust with respect to interpersonal relationships in the first instance. So it's about me trusting that if you say you're going to do something, that you will actually do it. So there's integrity behind your words and actions. But it's also a belief about the fact that in the future, there'll be a set of circumstances that will occur because of your actions, right? So there's a perception that is formed from past actions. And that's what I think is just a really fascinating concept around trust is that there's a magical quality to it. And, and that becomes a more concrete concept in business because that trust is necessary for us to be able to work together and be able to bring to fruition ideas, products, services that would not have happened if we were acting alone. Um, and I think it's a really important aspect of the work that we do in financial services in particular. You know, if I could make it less magical, because everything I think in economics and finance is, is not magical. The way that finance conceptualizes the idea of trust is I don't know stuff, so I have to hire an expert who knows more about managing finances. I delegate management of my financial decision-making, which is a big part of my life, to someone else. I have to believe that they're going to be acting in my best interest. And that definition is trust. Now, am I seeing signals that they're acting in my best interest? Do I see that they understand what my preferences truly are? Are they trying to take advantage of me? But this is all something that's almost quantifiable. It means that when I delegate decisions to an agent, so a, an expert, are they going to take advantage of me? And I kind of expect people to take advantage of me a little bit. But that extent to which they take advantage of me, if I trust them, I will allow them to make decisions on my behalf without looking over their shoulders constantly and judging them. And maybe that's what trust is, is the ability to let go and allow someone else to make expert decisions on my behalf and believe that they're not going to take advantage of me. Absolutely. No, I completely agree with that. And I think that, you know, the element of your ability to believe that is, is perception based. So it'll come from not only the behaviors that you can verify in that individual, but some people are just more trusting of everyone in every institution. And that comes from something that you may or may not be able to influence vis-a-vis -vis that relationship. And others, you might be able to verify and dot all your I's and cross your T's, and you might never get them over that, that trust-based barrier. So there is a, a psychological complexity to it. But I think at a minimum, having the, the consistency of these repeated interactions is, is fundamental. Those are the table stakes. What could an advisor do to generate a feeling of trust from a client to show that they're trustworthy? Well, I think at a minimum, there needs to be transparency around the relationship and the value that you're bringing to the relationship. 
There needs to be solid communication within the interactions and, and those conversations, be they digital interactions, Zoom these days, or face-to-face. The ability to meet face-to-face can help engender trust in developing actual and lasting relationships. But at the end of the day, and I think, Michael, you were alluding to this as well, you have to deliver on those promises. And I think that that's the the consistency of that delivery, the recognition from a client that, yes, there's a benefit for you in this relationship, but really you're working in my best interest first. And seeing that is true over time is, is an important aspect of being able to deliver on trust. So, you know, I perceive designations as a way to signal competency. What are your thoughts on designations like CHFC, CFP, CLU, et cetera, to signal trust? I think you're, you're right, David. I think at the end of the day, people come to a financial firm or a financial advisor because they need advice. They need to have someone who knows more than they do about the financial industry. Even if it's not a knowledge gap, there probably is a time-related reason why someone might be able to come to delegate their, their financial situation to an advisor. So with that in mind, given that education and knowledge is an important component of being able to at least appear trustworthy, I think it's important to have received the education that's necessary to do your job. And of course, to do your job consistent with that training and education. But we're also seeing increased regulatory interest in designations that may not necessarily live up to their own standards, right? So I think it's important to know that the designation itself is solid and it's backed by by good educational credentials. So that's something that's important to keep in mind as well. So it is possible for an advisor to be trustworthy to a client, but actually not to deserve that. So there is some research, for example, that people who are better looking were more likely to trust people who are better looking than people who are not as good looking. That is a false signal, a false signal that they're actually going to look out for our best interests. Trust is something that can be taken advantage of as well, and it cannot be genuine, that there are people who use techniques to get clients to trust them, but then don't necessarily have a very strong interest in making recommendations that are in the client's best interest. So that's a bit of a problem, right? I mean, we talk about trust as if it's always a good thing. And the research does say that people who are generally more trusting actually are more successful in life. But trust can also have a dark side. It's a really interesting point, Michael. And, you know, trust is a subset of ethics. If we think about the the idea that our biases shape our perceptions of the world. And we're able to be influenced by the biases that we are perceiving and and living on a day-to-day basis. So what I mean by that is that we have a perception of trust that's formed because of either these repeated interactions or the fact that there is a bias that we're acting upon. So if you're in a relationship with an advisor who is very good at making you trust them, and we can think of a few Ponzi schemes that have demonstrated the ability of some to engender trust who are not actually trustworthy, it's absolutely a problem. So there's a downside to being able to to be too good at appearing trustworthy without actually having the, the goods to deliver on it, for lack of a better word, right? So absolutely, there's a downside to it. And it should be used with care um, in relationships, particularly when there's money involved. 
So we just saw an example of research that suggests that when a private equity firm seeks out a financial planning firm to buy, they actually seek out firms that are more likely to follow ethical practices. They're less likely to get in trouble with the SEC. But after they buy that firm, all of a sudden, they create pressures to essentially exploit that trust that the advisor had engendered with their clients. And that brings me to a really, I think, a really challenging aspect of trust, which is that once you develop a trusting relationship with a client where they don't feel like they have to look over their shoulder or over your shoulder constantly to judge whether or not you're giving good advice, that that actually can be exploited to the next advisor that takes over that account. Is that true? Is that another problem with trust? Is that oftentimes the incentives can change when you change ownership of a firm? What I found really striking about this research, Michael, is that it's it's a fascinating example of how personal ethics can be influenced by the institution and the financial and social pressures that people are under. So absolutely, the, the research demonstrated how the private equity firms were looking for instances where financial advisory firms had low misconduct compared to others in the field. They would invest in them, and then they appeared to have changed their internal system so that there was more pressure on those same advisors to produce and increase assets under management. And consistent with those new incentives, the AUM went up, but so did the misbehavior. So they were seeing more instances of misconduct both in the regulatory context and in terms of consumer disputes. So there is something about that solid relationship that was originally in place between the advisors and their clients that had created a consistent book of business that was attractive from a PE perspective. But perhaps, and I'm not sure if we see this in in the evidence from this study, but perhaps that also created a, a fertile ground for the advisor to be able to take advantage of their customers to to kind of flip that relationship. The other thing that I thought was striking about that research is that the increase in misbehavior was concentrated among retail consumers, right? So there is something about the information asymmetry that might exist between a retail consumer and the firm versus the institutional space, which they didn't see that the, the PE firms and their impact actually had this effect on misbehavior. So there's a lot in there to, to uncover. And I think that it's really striking to see from an ethics perspective how, how the data was playing out. We'll take a break here. We'll be right back. Deliver financial planning for every person and every need through our chartered financial consultant education program. Find the tools and skills you need at theamericancollege.edu slash chfc. Get best-in-class preparation for your exam with our CFP Certification Education Program. Start your journey toward this valued designation at theamericancollege.edu slash CFP. So as you said, you know, I hear the American College Center for Ethics is doing some interesting stuff around ethics and advisors. Uh, can you provide some context? Yeah, absolutely, David. Thanks so much for the question. So we decided to do a deep dive into this topic because of all these reasons that we're talking about how trust is so important to the industry and to success of financial advisors. And 
we saw that the industry was actually consistently showing up as one of the least trusted sectors in business. And we thought that, well, that's interesting. We want to better understand what's going on there, particularly because we hear from leaders in the industry that it's so important for them to have trust in order to, to be able to run an effective business. So our, our general goal was to, to see if companies are able to better understand their consumers, can they better serve their needs as a result? And will that ideally help increase trust within the industry over time? Of course, there's a lot of companies that already aim to do this and they provide their own research on consumers, but we wanted to provide a unique perspective through the lens of trust. So, you know, we're, we're near the end of the research and we'll come out with all of our results later this year, but some of the early insights that we're seeing is that actually public trust in the industry has moderated in recent years. So there seems to have been some rebuilding since the financial crisis. And while other research had showed that the industry was the least trusted among business sectors, if you compare them to other service sectors, financial services does actually, they're right in the middle. They're, they're not too bad. They're less trusted than education and healthcare, but is ahead of other industries, such as telecom, governments, media and, and entertainment, for instance. One of the interesting findings that we're seeing in our research as well is that there's this interesting dynamic around consumers and access to information. So it seems that consumers are kind of caught between a rock and a hard place when it comes to information asymmetry. So on the one hand, four in 10 respondents, they're skeptical about the industry, and they feel that the industry makes too much money off of people like them. But on the other hand, they don't know who to turn to for information and advice. So they try to conduct their own research and they often find that they're overwhelmed by the information that's available to them. They perceive that the media and news coverage of the sector is too negative. So there's a bit of bias against that as well. But they also don't wanna only receive information directly from financial companies themselves. So, you know, as I've been reflecting on this as an educator, I see this as an opportunity for more financial education from the nonprofit sector to have the consumers really understand how they can have an independent view about their own personal finances and be able to have those types of conversations from an educated space. There's a lot more in our trust research, but we're seeing some really interesting findings. I guess I'm curious, not that there's an easy answer, but like, is there any low hanging fruit? Like, are, are there things that the industry could do that would seem low lift that would actually have a pronounced effect or perceived effect on overall trustworthiness? So in terms of kind of low hanging fruit, I think the most obvious is security, right? So I think at a minimum, people want to know that their money is safe, secure, it's where they left it. And so the opportunity to be able to have a protection against cybersecurity, risk, fraud, those types of events is really important. And we're seeing that not surprisingly within the data. What we're seeing also is that there's a, a desire to work with companies who live consistently within their stated values and also mirror the values of the clients and the consumers themselves. Um, that can be a little bit tricky because the consumers are seeing that there isn't necessarily a, a consistent opportunity to find that value match. So a lot of times they're actually having to not adhere to their own values to be able to engage in a financial relationship. But there seems to be a aligning of values motivated engagements that could lead to, to some low hanging fruit for the industry. So more to come on that. So I think when we're thinking about this relationship between an advisor and their client, 
we all want our clients to trust us because we all believe that we're acting ethically, but that may not actually be the case. I mean, if you asked any financial advisor in any business model, they would believe that they are acting ethically toward their client. Everybody likes to view themselves as ethical, despite the fact that our behavior to other people may seem blatantly unethical. So do we have blind spots when it comes to our own ethics that can create a problem with this trust? Absolutely, Michael, we do. And it's, it is interesting that in numerous studies, the researchers find that a majority of people overestimate their own ethics. So when people are asked if they believe they're above average on ethics, the majority of people say that they're above average. But of course, we can't all be above average. So it's not statistically possible. So there's something going on here in terms of the overestimation of our own ethical behavior and the likelihood that if we're put in a compromised situation that we will indeed be ethical which doesn't often end up being being the case. So we have we have a lot of blind spots and we get stuck in those blind spots for for a couple of reasons. One is just around ethical fading. It is not always easy for people to see and assess the ethicality of their situation and their decisions sometimes because of how they're framing their situation. You know, they're calling something a business decision rather than a client management decision or a retirement decision for their customer. It's just business. This is how business is done. So it's not about ethics. There's, of course, the slippery slopes. So if we start small, we're less likely to see a decision as an ethical one, and it can snowball into becoming a, a bigger problem down the line that then you feel like you have to defend your original decision in order to protect it. And then, you know, I'm going to come back to, to goal setting as the opportunity to cause unethical behavior. We talked about the, the private equity case earlier. That was clearly a, a situation where pressures on growth and goals can have an impact on decisions. Of course, this is a really tricky one in business because setting goals is a way to motivate people in business. Setting goals works. It, it works to motivate action. But unfortunately, it can also narrow our focus and ethics can fall away from the core of the, the processes when it comes to decision-making. So blind spots are everywhere and back to ethics being a muscle, you really need to be aware of the circumstances that could require you to exercise that muscle even harder and keep ethics top of mind. So Azish, how do I know when I have a blind spot? Are there things that I tell myself that signal that that might be a blind spot? I would say beware of rationalizations, right? So if you're in a circumstance where you're talking yourself into a decision that maybe you feel with further deliberation and if you had a, a trusted friend you could call, they might talk you out of it or give you a different perspective, that could be a flag that you should think about whether or not you're actually being your best self at that moment. And I think, you know, it, it's really important to to the extent possible, try to take ethics out of the gray areas. So if you're a leader in an organization, try to have a very clear communication around ethical expectations and behaviors. Ethics is a gray subject, of course. There's a lot of nuance to it. 
but the more we can make it clear what is a right behavior and what it's a wrong behavior, the more we are likely to get the ethical decision-making out of the blind spot and onto the table as a core value to talk about and to understand right and wrong. And leaders and organizations really have the ability to do that. And I'd encourage companies to think about it. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Azish. It was my pleasure. Thank you both for having me on. I'm Michael Finca. Thank you for joining us today. I'm David Blanchett. See you later. For more episodes and shows, visit theamericancollege.edu slash podcasts. Wealth Managed is a production of the American College of Financial Services.